Today in Science from Wired. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. How your body adapts to extreme cold. Scientists are finding a dynamic story in human physiology linked to frigid temperatures, a story that climate change may rewrite. By Max G. Levy. A bitter winter storm is sweeping across the northeast of North America this weekend and is expected to bring significant snow to New York City for the first time in two years. Low temperatures around freezing are expected to last into next week. If this is making you miserable, it's because you, like most people, overwhelmingly prefer hot places. That group does not include Kara Okabach, a biological anthropologist at University of Notre Dame, who is one of the scientists trying to understand how the human body adjusts to extreme cold. I just handle cold much better than I can handle heat, says Okabach. Researchers like Okabach have recently uncovered a variety of physiological adaptations linked to cold. Those range from anatomical to metabolic changes and can stem from generations of natural selection or simply the short-term effects of acclimatization. These discoveries help people make practical decisions today, and most important to Okabach, They hint at what we should expect in an increasingly capricious climate where winter cyclones freeze people in what are normally hot places and heat waves make people swelter in what are normally icy ones. Climate change is driving up ocean temperatures, fueling powerful winter storms in the northeast U.S. seemingly every year. Strong polar winds are bringing harsher, earlier cold fronts. This October, temperatures in Houston, Texas dropped a record 43 degrees Fahrenheit within 24 hours. Denver, Colorado, tied its earliest freeze in history on September 8, 2020, just hours after reaching 93 degrees in a record-setting heat wave. A deep freeze engulfed Texas for nine days in February 2021. It was the state's coldest storm in 132 years. Scientists have debated whether an Atlantic Ocean current will collapse, triggering a massive drop in temperatures in Europe. But many disagree. Meanwhile, Earth's summers have been brutal, even in the most frigid places such as Siberia, which endured record heat in 2021 and 2023. Okabach wonders what we can learn about human bodies in a changing climate. There have been people who have been living in these climates for generations upon generation upon generation, and we are now seeing unprecedented rapid change in weather as well as climate, she says. So how are our bodies responding to it? Is there a limit to how they can respond to it? 
Climate change also creates and amplifies refugee crises, which send people to entirely new climates. People are migrating into environments they've never been in before, Okobok says, noting the presence of Sudanese refugees in Finland. New insights help us understand how to cope with extreme cold and how to prepare for losing it. Okobok's wintry work began a decade ago, when she was a graduate student traveling to Wyoming to collect data from students of the nonprofit National Outdoor Leadership School. During six-week-long expeditions in Wyoming's backcountry, she would hike out in parallel to the students and pitch a tent a couple of kilometers away. Each day, she'd pop in to measure their weights and collect urine samples, activity monitors, and travel logs. She hoped these measurements could help her predict the poorly understood energy demands that cold environments place on human bodies. People would go out on these courses, and they would come back having dropped a lot of weight. And in some cases, that's okay, but in other cases, people were losing a lot of muscle mass and coming back feeling horrible, she says. Her dissertation revealed that the winter backpackers expend surprisingly few calories to stay warm. At first, this seems counterintuitive. They don't have external heating sources. They're living in tents, and they just have their clothes with them. They're very exposed to the elements every single day, Okabok says. These conditions should make muscles shiver as the body works overtime. But Okobach noticed that exercise lifted that burden. Simply moving around a snowy environment on cross-country skis and snowshoes changed the body's calculus. The wonderful part about muscle is that it's inefficient, she says. Only 20 to 30 percent of the calories your muscles burn go to actually doing things, and much of the rest is wasted as heat. In the cold, though, this heat is no waste. It lowers the cost of thermoregulation. Scientists had never shown what Okobach did in a natural setting. It fueled her curiosity about cold climates, populations who have been there for millennia, rather than American students who are just hopping into the Rocky Mountains for the winter, she says. So after Wyoming, Okobach began a project with reindeer herders in Finland that include the Sami, an indigenous group. Okobach spent three years building relationships and trust before collecting data. Worth the wait, she felt, since scientists still knew little about how bodies respond to extreme cold. There hadn't been any recent work on cold physiology, Okobach says. A lot of things were left over from the 1930s and even older. Historical research had provided cold physiology with three guiding principles relevant to many warm-blooded animals. Bergman's rule, Allen's rule, and Thomson's rule. German anatomist Carl Bergman theorized in 1847 that animals of similar species tend to be larger in cold climates. For example, polar bears have a couple feet of height and a few hundred pounds on the average grizzly. Thirty years after Bergman, American ornithologist Joel Ossoff Allen tacked shorter appendages onto the theory of larger bodies. Polar bears have stockier limbs and smaller ears than black bears. In the 1920s, British anthropologist Arthur Thompson argued that people in cold places have longer, narrower noses. Bergman's and Allen's theories were all about the importance of bodies retaining heat in their cores. Thompson's supposed that nasal cavities condition ambient air before it reaches the lungs. Cold, dry air can irritate the airways and lungs and may weaken our sense of smell. But in a narrower cavity, cold, dry air mingles longer with warm blood and moisture. Thompson's rule simplifies what's actually a complex part of our evolution likely influenced by other factors like sexual attraction. But researchers in the past decade have found supporting evidence based on studying people with roots in northern Europe, 
West Africa, South Asia, and East Asia, showing that wider nostrils appear more frequently among people in colder places, suggesting an environmental adaptation. Bergman's and Allen's rules also held up when comparing old data on body sizes in warm climates to those of Sami, Inuit, and Uwit populations. But a 2013 study found that Bergman's rule only applies when groups are 50 degrees of latitude apart or live in places with 30-degree difference in temperature. When the distances and temperatures aren't so different, body sizes aren't meaningfully different either. Today, physiologists and anthropologists like Okobach are focused more on distinguishing what happens within bodies that are accustomed to cold. Our bodies make their own vitamin D out of a precursor chemical, 7-dehydrocholesterol, that absorbs UVB rays from sunlight. Near the equator, there's enough strong sun for people to get their vitamin D supply. In fact, the risk is too much cancer-causing sunlight, so people have more melanin, a skin pigment that absorbs UV. But as frigid climates get less sun, melanin competes with 7-dehydrocholesterol for weaker sunlight, so the body risks underproducing vitamin D. Experts believe this prompted ancient humans who lived in northern latitudes to develop lighter skin tones, which synthesize vitamin D faster, an adaptation to life far from the equator. Other adaptations keep the body warm. Blood vessels constrict when it's cold to limit blood flow to extremities like hands and feet. It's uncomfortable and limits dexterity, but it also minimizes heat loss. When skin temperature drops enough, however, the body briefly lets warm blood re-enter the fingers, toes, ears, and nose. This blood vessel dilation explains why your ears get red and painful in the cold. Populations in cold parts of the world have reportedly faster cycles between vasoconstriction and vasodilation, which provides a more balanced temperature regulation in extreme conditions. And this is nothing new. DNA from 4,000-year-old hair preserved in Greenland shows signs of vasoconstriction. That same hair sample also showed genetic signs of high body mass index, which is another adaptation for cold. Fat and muscle insulate the body, and populations that live in cold places also maintain more of both on average. That fat has a job, particularly a type of fat called brown adipose tissue. Scientists had once believed that bodies just shiver to generate heat a belief that was upended once they realized that brown adipose tissue allows rodents to produce heat without shivering. Then about 20 years ago, scientists discovered brown fat in adult humans. No one has a lot of it. Human limits max out around 100 grams, distributed mostly around the neck, back, shoulders, heart, and kidneys. Anthropologists traced it predominantly to people who live in cold environments. Brown fat became quasi-synonymous with cold adaptation and the purported health benefits of cold exposure. It burns calories to produce heat when you feel cold, and studies have suggested it helps regulate obesity and blood sugar. Last year, Okobach reported that brown fat speeds up the metabolism in Finnish reindeer herders by about 9% when they feel cold. Thanks for listening to Wired. My name is Zeke Robison, and for the rest of this story, visit us at Wired.com. Like what you learned? Subscribe everywhere you listen to podcasts and get more science news at wired.com science. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.